Hi, and welcome to our fourth Universalist service video. My name is Ember Kelly, and I'm the Director of Religious Education here at the Fourth Universalist Society. I use she and her pronouns, and we're so glad to have you with us today. What follows are selections from our service on November 28th, 2021. In this video, you'll hear the reading and the reflection from our live stream. Following that, we hope you'll join us for a lively discussion where we go deeper into the service themes together. You're invited to check out this podcast each week in both audio and video format. It's posted on our website, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, as well as your favorite podcast streaming sites. If you like what you see, we do hope that you leave us a positive review. The likes, the comments, the sharing, the subscribing, this all helps to spread Fourth Universalist media further. Finally, we acknowledge that our community is located on the lands of the Munsei Lenape people. With this acknowledgement, we seek to continue the process of working to dismantle ongoing legacies of oppression. We invite you to join us in this work as we work to embrace the eighth UU principle. Thank you again for watching. We begin with our reading. today is The End of po Poetry by Ada Limon. Ada Limon is a living poet from Sonoma, California. Of this poem, she says, when the pan pandemic began, there was so much silence and anxiety that I found myself unable to read and write. I was very aware of the way language fails us how poetry fails us, even when it saves us too. Poems and their subjects felt almost pointless against the great grief of the world. This poem came out of surrender. I had given up on words, and then of course, they came back and brought me back to life. The End of Poetry. Enough of osseous and chickadee and sunflower and snowshoes, maple and seeds, samara and shoot. Enough chiaroscuru, enough of thus and prophecy and the stoic farmer and faith and our father and tis of thee. Enough of bosom and bud, skin and God, not forgetting and star bodies and frozen birds enough of the will to go on or not go on or how a certain light does a certain thing enough of the kneeling and the rising and the looking inward and the looking up enough of the gun the drama and the acquaintances suicide and the long lost letter on the dresser Enough of the longing and the ego and the obliteration of ego. Enough of the mother and the child and the father and the child. And enough of the pointing to the world, weary and desperate. Enough of the brutal and the border. Enough of can you see me 
Can you hear me? Enough. I am human. Enough, I am alone, and I am desperate. Enough of the animals saving me. Enough of the high water. Enough sorrow. Enough of the air and its ease. I am asking you to touch me. So our second reading for today is somewhat unconventional. It is the uh, last recording of the Kauai O'o, a male of the species. It's a, a tropical bird in Hawaii. Um, in this recording, the male is calling for a female who would usually sing back in a duet. Um, this is the last known member of the species who is now extinct and it is calling out with no one left to return his call. That recording is haunting. Learn about crypto and get paid. In the silences, there is the response that the bird is habitually waiting to hear, but which never comes. There is the haunting of knowing that at that moment, not death as that which is part of life, but complete annihilation is just on the horizon. I don't believe that it's merely an anthropomorphism to hear existential sadness in the Kauai O'o calling out to loneliness. At the very least, it's the bird's instinct to expect a return call, but I suspect that there is something more. I suspect that the Kauai O'o feels grief and existential dread. It's not something I can prove, but I do suspect it. In our modern world, we are haunted by the grief of creatures who were once with us and are no longer here. When I was a child, my parents used to give me zoo books. There are these little books with facts about animals. They had these glossy photos. Um, many from my generation will likely remember these small pamphlet-sized books with interesting facts and maps and tables. I loved these books. I would spend hours organizing them, collecting them by family or genus. I would play games where I was the Siberian tiger or a ring-tailed lemur. 
And on all of them, there would be this little indicator on the bottom right corner that would say things like endangered or critically endangered. It got to the point where endangered seemed like a fairly good category to be in. That seemed to be where most of the animal statuses was. I didn't think too deeply about it. I'm, I was seven, so what did I know? But in Colorado, the amount of conservation education far outweighed the education of other topics. I swear I must have gone to the zoo a hundred times and learned the same lesson over and over. Habitat loss and poaching are causing this, that, or the other animal to be critically endangered or worse, to be found only in captivity. So while my head was filled with facts that I could hold and let go at will, the emotional and existential content of the impending loss of so many of our animal kin did not register. It simply seemed to be one fact among many. And I feel like this continues to be true for us now. The more we hear about the effects of the climate crisis on our planet and the pollution of our oceans, the more that these facts just become a part of our lives. They may periodically call us out to redouble our efforts in recycling or to passionately declaim to our climate-denying friends that they are diluted, but the full existential weight of these losses eludes us in the soup of routine. Now, there, there's a word that you have likely heard describing our age, the Anthropocene. It is a word that some geologists use to describe the geological age on par with the Jurassic or the Cambrian, where the most powerful and pervasive cause of ecological change is humans. Now, geological ages are often given extremely inexact start dates and end dates. The Cretaceous period was 63 million years ago, give or take a couple million. But if we're in a new geological age, which started within written or recorded history, when did it start? I like to imagine that if we told the captains of industry around the turn of the 20th century that in just under 100 years, humanity would consider itself the leading cause of ecological change, they would celebrate the great victory of humans over nature. We conquered the rivers, the oceans, the cold, cold winters. We can extract resources at will. This is one of the reasons why this age has been given another name, the capital Ocene, meaning that the biggest factor in ecological change is not necessarily humans in our biological form, but the structures of the society that extracts resources to convert it to wealth. In this view, it's not the natural or biological imperative of humans, but a social and political decision made over centuries to ever more efficiently and destructively extract any resource from the earth and convert them into abstract and material value. So can we pinpoint the start of the Anthropocene? I know this may seem like an idle or philosophical question, but the answer that we provide to this question colors how we conceive of the meaning of our domination of the planet. For instance, if we say that the Anthropocene started the moment we began to settle into agricultural lives, say, like 10,000 years ago, 
where we would plant, sow, and engage in the domestication of animals for food. If we pinpoint that as the moment, then what does that say about the subsequent years? 10,000 years starts to seem a lot more like a biological imperative than it does a modern choice. It begins to feel like all of the glorious inventions, thoughts, and meaning that we have made were premised upon our own self-destruction. Theologically, if you believe in a God, it makes us ask if God set us up to fail, having been given the earth to sow and reap. But what if we say it started with Copernicus? Copernicus looked at the starry heavens with his telescope and the accretion of mathematical knowledge from centuries past, and he made this startling discovery that this planet is not the center of the universe, not even the solar system. This planet revolved around a sun that was no more special than any other stars of the galaxy. For centuries, maybe even millennia before this, Western people saw themselves as the center of the universe that was the sole focus of God, the top of the creation chain, and the most meaningful of all God's creatures. What did it mean now to be so decentered, to be a vague chunk of rock floating around another vague chunk of rock randomly scattered in a huge universe of millions of other stars and planets? Now, was it this feeling of loneliness, of existential loneliness, of being abandoned to float through space alone that led to the imperative to make our own future, to take the reins of the planet, so to speak? Was the Copernican revolution the moment that we first felt the existential dread that presses on us now so heavily? Or maybe we can locate it at a different moment. Maybe it's somewhere closer to us today. Perhaps it was the moment that we ignited the first atomic bomb. Now, I'm particularly drawn to this moment in history. Um, every April, the Trinity bomb site in New Mexico, it opens its gates to the general public to allow them to view the birthplace of the atomic age. Now, Trinity is the name of the first atomic bomb. It was tested in New Mexico, and it was named such because it was one of only three developed at the time. One year, I was able to visit. Um, it's deep in the White Sands Desert, and we camped there preparing for the next morning. The place seemed lifeless, a huge sandbox of beautiful snowy white sand. We soon discovered that even here, there were all types of life surrounding us. There were spiders and moths and beetles. There were even a whole group of creatures who turned white like the sand and are found nowhere else on the planet. The bleached earless lizard, the Apache pocket mouse, the sand treader camel cricket. That desert was filled with secret life. The Trinity site was not. The bomb site is positioned in the middle of a region in the White Sands area known as the Jornada del Muerto, or the dead person's root, and it seemed to live up to that name. The site itself is a huge blast radius of sand and a special glass that was created in the, in the blast. It's called Trinitite because it exists nowhere else on Earth. It's highly radioactive. And in the middle of the blast site sits an obelisk 
marking the day and site of the first detonation of an atomic bomb. And there's a, a story I want to tell you about that first detonation. So the scientists who created these bombs had never tested them, and they had no idea exactly what they would do. So there was a pool, a betting pool, um, where they were taking bets about the likely effects, like anything from a complete dud, nothing's going to happen, to ending all life on the planet as we knew it. And so the night before the blast, so afraid of, were they that there were Nazi conspirators who would sabotage the bomb so that it would fail, they assigned a young scientist to sit next to the bomb for the night and babysit it. The bomb was suspended on a tower 100 feet above the ground, and the scientist sat in a box right next to it. And that night, there was a lightning storm, which for some reason, to me, makes this all the more frightening. Um, but we can guess that we can only guess what the scientists did there. Sat in fear, read a book, daydreamed about the end of the war. But I want to ask if it was that night, at that moment, guarding the device that for the first time, humanity had an awareness that they could unleash a power strong enough to end all life on Earth. Perhaps even more surprising, they discovered their will to test it out. Was it embodied in that singular will to sit next to what might have been the, everything, the end of everything we have ever known or loved? I often think that day of the Trinity explosion is a day when humanity discovered the deepest wells of its existential loneliness, that we were alone on this planet and our decisions could end everything and our will would allow it. So is it any surprise that a being with the will to risk complete self-annihilation would also shrug at ecological destruction that renders extinct, not just dead, but extinct entire species of so-called lesser creatures? Was this the moment when humans became conscious of what it meant to be made in the likeness of the divine? Or is this the moment when humans killed the divine? 20 years later, humans also did the unthinkable. They left the planet and they walked on the surface of the moon. And for the first time, they stood on solid ground and took in the sight of the entire planet with one blink. For the first time, they credibly imagined a path to abandoning the destruction. And the more I think about this question, I think maybe I'm asking the wrong question. Instead, maybe I should be asking, when did I first realize this? Existential loneliness, that mass extinction and ecological destruction births. When did I first become aware of the vibration of anxiety, placelessness, and depression that vibrate just below the fully conscious surface and which completely and thoroughly infects the world? When did I begin to feel the sadness of our ecological alienation? There is a concept that is becoming more well-known called ecological grief, and I believe that all of us, to some extent or another, have ecological grief, but we are not all aware of it. I think it emerges in strange ways in all of us. Perhaps it emerges when we daydream about heading out into the wild without a look back. 
or when we spend the day out with the family at the botanical gardens and we see the bee shove its face into the cherry blossom over and over and we feel out of place. Or when a child tells us that it's funny that the word that describes the animal chicken is the same word that describes the food chicken. Sometimes we find it in meditation and we want more than anything to feel ourselves in the grass. For me, that moment was hearing the Kauai O'o calling out into nothingness. The grief of another creature not only losing its chance at love, but being the last of its kind, so terribly alone until it was not. And now all we have is its grief. Recognizing ecological grief Feeling the enormity of it changes your life. When I, sometimes when I express this despair and I am told callous things about the relative uselessness of certain losses or of the shifting of guilt to talk about the dinosaurs and the commonality of extinction or the exhausted shrug of there is nothing we can do about it. I know that when I hear that, that it is just that the grief has not yet sunk in or that it is too much to handle at that moment but it doesn't mean it's not there. And I think that recognizing this emotion as grief is vital. When we recognize grief in others, we do not immediately jump to defensiveness or solutions. We do not say, it's not my fault that this person died. We express our sympathy and solidarity in that common human experience of love and loss. We, in our best moments, sit alongside each other in our grief. It is seeing this grief, holding this grief, holding each other in this grief that will move us to heal, not only ourselves, but also our planet. And so this is not a call to action. It's not a call to do something specific, like turn to veganism or trade in your car for a bike. We can leave that aside for a moment. First, we should take the time to feel the grief, to acknowledge it, to make it part of ourselves. It is only through knowing what is so valuable to us that to lose it would hurt more than we can bear that we create meaningful changes in our lives and the world. This grief exists and it is waiting to be felt it is a grief of not being at home in the world. The German philosopher Immanuel Kant is considered by many to be the founder of modernity, but it's his tombstone I want to talk about, which reads, two things fill the mind with ever new and increasing admiration and awe, the starry heavens above me and the moral law within me. Now this is a half truth, for he was missing the third term the synthesis of the divine heavens and the divinity within, and that is the earth upon which all of this divinity can meet. If we forget the earth, we lose our connection to both the starry heavens above and the moral law within. We become existentially homeless and hopeless. May we have the courage to hold in solidarity our grief for the planet in peril. May we hold it with the sparrows and the turkeys and the lizards and the worms and the kawaii o'o. Each of their losses is a loss to our souls 
a loss to our earthly family, and make us more lonely on this planet. So let us hold our animal kin in solidarity. May it be so, and amen. Olas, it's so great to get to hear from you today, but also to get to sit down and discuss this uh, message together. This was just a really intriguing, beautiful, thoughtful message, and I'm so excited that we get to sit down. For anybody um, who may not know you, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Absolutely, and thank you so much for, for inviting me back forth you. Um, to, to preach and to be here with you, Ember. Um, I'm Olas Terianis, pronouns they, them. Um, I am a sponsored seminarian at Fourth U. I'm, I'm currently in a seminary, Union Theological Seminary, and um, I'm on my last leg of my journey there and, and hopefully moving closer to uh, uh, ordination, one step closer. That that ordination journey is a one one day at a time. I can I can vouch for that. Exactly. <laughs> so with this message, uh, it is a, a bit intense in places. Um, thinking about grief, thinking about animals, thinking about extinction—these really big uh, concepts. What inspired uh, this this message? Like, what what made you go? This is what I want to talk about at Fourth. Yeah, I mean, I I think first. Uh, First and foremost is is hearing the the recording that I, I started the sermon with the the um, kind of haunting recording of of the Kwai Oo and something that I learned later about that recording is the person that recorded it um, then played it back to make sure they got the audio and the Kwai Oo came back thinking it was some another bird returning its call which felt even more devastating. Um, uh, than, than my initial um, read on that. And so I think that that was first in, in my mind, um, but also uh, there's a wonderful text by um, Val Plumwood uh, called In the um, Eye of the Crocodile. And, and Val Plumwood had been um, almost eaten alive by a crocodile and lived uh, to continue writing and a big part of her writing is to reconnect with the earth through um, realizing that we are food, that we are like something that is edible. We, we are not just the things that eat other creatures. Um, and so like that idea of reconnecting to the earth as being vulnerable among vulnerable things um, uh, really pulled me into this, this topic. Yeah. So besides maybe an extensive collection of zoo books, uh, were, were there resources that you perhaps uh, drew from as you uh, thought about this? Or, I mean, it seems like a topic that you've given some thought to overall. Um, is, there, is there any books or resources you'd recommend folks to check out? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Zoo books are the best and anyone from the 90s uh, probably had their collection of these. I don't know if they're still being produced at this time, but I hope that they are. Get a vintage um, set on eBay. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> uh, I, men I mentioned uh, the Plumwood, uh, also a beautiful book, Wild Dog Dreaming. Um, is, uh, it's a book, um, it's hard to describe, but it's a theological sort of exploration of um, 
the Aboriginal uh, connection with wild dogs um, and their kind of place in the cosmos and is very, very much a, a tale about exactly what I was saying before, our, our connection with um, animals, not our separation, but like this sort of seeing eye to eye with other creatures. Um, it's a very beautiful book. To add that, my, you know, doing these videos means I have an ever growing to read list. Just uh, every time I make one of these, it comes up with something new I got to add to the pile. Uh, <laughs> For sure. Too much to read always. Yes. Uh, the other seminary struggle. Uh, too much to read always. Um, so I'm I'm curious. Uh, you know what? So we have this we have this sacred space being at at fourth, being um, engaging in this message from the pulpit of a congregation. You know, um, UU has a complicated perhaps idea of sacred space, but we're all coming together because this community means something to us and we want to hear these messages that challenge us. So what are some ways that you think that like churches, ritual, sacred space can really help us uh, reground to earth and reground to the, you know, as, as the UU's world would put it, uh, the, the web of life? How do, we, how do we begin to do that when we've often disconnected ourselves so extremely from it? Yeah, I mean, I, it, it's it's a fascinating question that I'm I'm really thinking a lot about these days, especially um, just the idea of like the four walls of of the sanctuary uh, as creating being a place that like we can kind of control the space. You know, there's art uh, that we can put there. There we can control the temperature and the comfort, but it also removes us from uh, the elements, from the trees, from the wind, from the rain. Um, and I've seen, I mean, there is some interesting work going on about ritual, outdoor ritual space, uh, especially in um, homeless communities. Um, Philadelphia has a wonderful, like, outdoor church. Uh, it's it's um, Episcopalian, um, but they do communion and everything kind of like out of doors. And this, this idea of um, just kind of connecting to... Uh, what's outside. I, I know that Fourth U has done things, you know, uh, picnics in the park and, and things like that, which is wonderful. Um, but I, I think also like just the things that we do, water communion, I think is a beautiful way of, of connecting that, this idea of bringing in water from all different sources and bringing it together inside of the sanctuary and this, this kind of feeling of bringing in that which was from the outside, that which was wild into the sanctuary. Um, yeah. As you mentioned that, I can't help but think about, so I'm, I'm somebody who has to be at service uh, early on, on, on Sundays. I'm often there at 7.30, um, getting everything set up because I like to be early to things. Uh, but being there early, I get to see the sunrise come through the window. Um, and it feels like, especially given like everything else about the design of the building, um, it seems like this was something that was probably intentionally done so that early in the morning on Sundays that, that the light would shine so brightly through our window down onto the space. Like I know that this is something that's pretty common, especially in like the old cathedrals that they thought through these sorts of things that they um, had, you know, I, I think there's speculation that Stonehenge was something like that, that the angles will point in a specific place during the equinoxes 
you know, I think that's a, a real beautiful way to also like, even if we're going to be meeting inside buildings to find ways to incorporate nature uh, into our space. Absolutely. And I, one thing I love about Fourth U is always doing equinox and solstice services and really drawing us back to this idea that that moon is the same moon that dinosaurs looked at. You know, that sun is the same sun that the pre-Cambrian, you know, sea creatures relied on. Um, it, it gives you that kind of connection of the enormity of, of time on this planet. Gosh, well, and as we think about the enormity of time, I think it kind of gets at the fact that like theologically, we often center humanity, um, even as you uh, use who have it in our principles to think about the web of life. Uh, oftentimes, I think for a lot of folks, it's really easy for, for humanity to, to be the center of that web. Um, <laughs> so how do we begin to move away from this idea of like humans as masters of the world, even if uh, we think that we are part of the web of life. How do we not act like we don't just control everything? I mean, it's it's hard. I, I don't I don't know if I have an answer to that. I think it's a constant a thing that we constantly work on. One one resource that I avoided mentioning, um, but I think is a really great resource is um, the French philosopher Jacques. De that a part of his exploration oh did i go out on the internet yeah you were you said the french philosopher so why don't you just start exactly there again great uh jacques derrida uh he wrote an essay called the animal that i therefore am Losing Derrida. Are you there? Hi, I'm here now. Are you? <laughs> I am. Let's let's like talk for two seconds. I can edit this out later, and then we'll okay. start at Der at at Derrida again. Um, yeah, I don't know. I I can move maybe closer to my internet, but it it shouldn't. I I think Zoom has a, a Derrida filter on it that it catches <laughs> at the same time. I was gonna say maybe that's actually the problem. <laughs> yeah, uh, the the ghost of of Derrida coming to haunt your. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't put it past him. I mean, fair. Um, okay, but yeah, let's just give this a couple seconds, and then we'll say. Yeah. And if it freezes at this exact moment again, <laughs> we'll just move on. <laughs> no more Derrida. <laughs> Wait, you said it and it didn't freeze. So, okay. So, okay. French philosopher. Uh, Jacques Derrida, he wrote an essay called The Animal That I Therefore Am. Uh, and in that he kind of centers as a central hierarchy that all of the rest of the sort of hierarchies relate to is humans over animals, like humans given dominion over the earth over animals. And then from there, you get the sort of cascade of different binaries, you know, man uh, over woman, uh, white over color, like all of these, all of these um, really problematic binaries, he centers back to the central binary of uh, God gave, you know, Adam 
uh, control of the creatures, the ability to name the animals and, and how much this has really affected Western thinking. And so when you have 2000 years of thought, uh, you know, building the world, just like trying to dismantle um, racist, you know, ideologies, just like it is difficult to dismantle misogynist things. It is also very difficult to dismantle this sense that we are the most important creatures on the planet, that this planet was made for us. Um, and sometimes it's, it's reflection on the dinosaurs. Sometimes it's, it's mourning, uh, mourning the loss of our fellow creatures. Well, I think that, that was one of the really moving things for the, the message for me was that, uh, that instead of, uh, it, was, it was countercultural in many ways to talk about grieving, but also it was a little bit counter UU culture to say, let's just sit and feel this grief and be okay with it. Instead of here's 10 action points on how to move to <laughs> um, fight, fight the extinct mass extinction of animals. <laughs> so, I mean, I think it's so important for us to encourage uh, grieving as a part of our relationship to the web of life as a way to, to uncenter humanity. Yeah. Yeah, I think there is, I really do think that there is a place for us to say, here are the action plans. Like, these are the things we know uh, we, we need to do, not only for our survival, but, you know, for the survival of, of our fellow creatures. And I think that a lot of times what happens is we get caught up on the lists of to-dos. Um, and, and that's, you know, like I said, really important. We don't need more facts. We know these things. There are things that that can happen. Um, but we do that sometimes at the detriment of, of feeling through it and, and really can reconnecting ourselves to why it's so important and, and what we risk uh, by not. And, and so I feel like the, the sanctuary space, that, that sacred space is a really good place for us just to have that, that reflection and to reconnect to kind of our roots. And then from there, we can grow into the 10 point action plan, the, the, you know, the red deal, the, all of these really important things and, and work that, that are so necessary. Um, so it's, it's not to say that that, that, that to-do lists are not important. They're so important. Um, and it's also important to just take an hour to feel it. Especially in a society that tells us not just to move on quickly from grief. It's okay yeah. to, to feel that feeling. Olas, it's so great as always to get to sit down with you. I, I love it when you come to preach solely because it means that I get to sit down and chat with you for a little bit. Oh, thank you so much. And I always love chatting and I always, I'm, I'm so just happy to be back with you and to be back speaking with you. So thank you. Mm -hmm.